Welcome to episode 11 of Where Did It All Go Right? So this is the first episode that was recorded in my kitchen on some rather squeaky chairs. Well, I say squeaky, they're wicker. So you can hear the wicker in the background, but if you can get over that, it'll be fine. Um, Now, I've wanted to speak to author Claire McIntosh for ages because I think she's a great example of someone who switched careers. And not only has it been a slightly good idea, it's been a phenomenally, ridiculously, successfully good idea. Um, So Claire's had amazing success with her books. They are I Let You Go, I See You, Let Me Lie. You've probably seen them on bookshelves everywhere. Coming this year, A Cotswold Family Life and After the End. Now, if you've ever wanted to write, you really need to listen to this because even though Claire has admitted she's had some lucky breaks, she's also really, really focused and she's got some brilliant advice. Uh, She was weirdly passing through Oxford when I emailed her and said, oh, can we meet up sometime? And she's like, well, I'm kind of passing your door. So she literally... screeched uh, onto my front drive, had a pit stop at my place and recorded the podcast. Enjoy. This is hilarious, Claire, that you just kind of ran past my house on, on route to another interview and you're in my kitchen on my squeaky chairs. So thank you so much for coming and talking it's to me. <laughs> and, and to talk to you about what is such a phenomenal, successful career, um, because I see so many people every day on social media saying, I'm in this writing community, I want to write and I'm going to jack it all in and I'm going to do it. And But where do I start? You did that because your story is so fascinating because you were a policewoman. I was a policewoman. Yeah, I was a policewoman for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And then I did I did just that. I, I jacked it all in. And people always say, don't give up the day job. But I think in, in my case, it was... It was the very fact that I'd given up the day job. I had no financial security. I had to make it work. Mm. And so I did. Were you talking to your family about it for a while? Were you, was it sort of seven years into your career that, of the police that you thought, I'm going to do this? Or was it the, se- the seven-year itch? It was after I had kids, which, which is not an uncommon mm. time for uh, lots of us, but particularly women, to be thinking about their priorities I didn't immediately want to leave work when I had kids. I didn't have that sudden kind of, oh, I just want to be at home with with the kids. I did go back to work. I worked full time. I had a really, really high pressured, busy job, lots of hours. And I I had an appraisal that concluded that I was um, good at my job, that my door was always open. I was enthusiastic. I was energetic. I always made time for people, optimistic, all these great things. And I was so proud of it that I took it home to show my husband. And he read it and he said, yeah, this is great. Who's this woman? I don't know who she is. And it was it was that the absolute pivotal moment of my career because it made me realise that, like a lot of people, I was using all the best bits of me for my work colleagues and giving my family the leftovers. And that was not something I wanted to do. It had to change. Because I've seen, I've seen video footage, I think, of you in Oxford where there was a yeah, demonstration protest. protest. Yeah. And I was like, this is Claire on, you know, on the beat. Um, but just really, it's such a, a big responsibility, the job that you had. And I can imagine that getting home to young children was just a complete massive gear change. It, it was this sort of weird, yeah, weird conflict of, of um, priorities. And I, I remember one day making cakes, making fairy cakes with the children. So they were all, all my children were born within 15 months. Um, I've got, uh, I had a toddler and then, and then twins. Um, and I was making fairy cakes with them all. And then two hours later, I was standing at the um, Kassam Stadium watching a massive fight 
breaking out and there were you know police horses and the radio was going mad and we all had riot gear and you know flame proof overalls on and just thinking this is insane and and I felt like half of me was was mum and half of me was mom and and I couldn't quite make the two work together and I know that lots of women do mm. and I have huge admiration for them I'm a firm believer that you you can absolutely have a career when you have children I found that at that particular moment I wasn't handling it well and so I chose to to switch careers Seeing a fight at the Cassandra gives you good skills for when you get home and the kids are kicking off. It is breaking up very handy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so you made that massive decision. Um, were you feeling empowered by it or were you completely terrified? Terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely uh, terrified. I, at the time, I was the slightly larger wage earner. We very much needed both our incomes. By leaving work, I was saving uh, childcare costs but I still needed to make money. Not as much as I'd done before, but I had to make money. If I didn't, we couldn't pay our mortgage. It was as simple as that. So there must have been some months, months though, that things were pretty dodgy because you had a column, didn't you, in, in, in Cotswold Life? So that was a little bit of bread and butter. <laughs> I had my... Well, if you can call £50 bread and butter, £50 a month, that it was... It all looks so glamorous. I know. That was the... Um, it's gone up slightly uh, since then, not very but slightly uh, that was the sole sum of my my writing cv by that point i had a blog that had a large a large following and i and i had a little bit of income from advertising on on that blog so i'd become sort of fairly savvy about how i could monetize my blog so i was doing that and i had my column and then i had pitched a piece to the guardian about having a birthday on leap day so I have twins who are born on the 29th of February they only have a birthday every four years and I pitched a piece about what that might look like for other people and they went for it and so there was my first national commission a decent rate and really on the back of that I decided that I would make my living from writing which looking back (laughs) was maybe a bit optimistic But you, like you say, you had a, a mortgage to pay, so you thought, I've got to do something, yeah. something that I love doing, because that, yes. that's a massive thing, isn't yes. it? It gives you a little bit of, I think, for, for what I do, if you love doing it, it gives you a little bit of, not power, that's the wrong word, but it, it, confidence. It does, absolutely, absolutely, and, and some identity as well, because walking away from a career is very emotionally hard as well as practically hard, and I, I mean, I cried when I handed my warrant card in, because being a police officer was who I was mm. and without it I wasn't really sure who who I was going to be uh, and I didn't feel I could I could call myself a writer really for quite a long time so I realized very quickly that journalism because I wasn't a journalist was not going to form the bulk of my income and what I needed to do was I, I needed to have eggs in a lot of different baskets I think I very grandly um, told myself it was a portfolio career but really, it was more more of a sort of I don't know, patchwork spread. Uh, I did some journalism, very much using my own experience, pitching opinion pieces. Whenever there was something contentious in the news, I would find an opinion on it and pitch it somewhere. Uh, got some regular gigs. There was a, a website called Parent Dish that was taken over by AOL. And I ended up writing four or five pieces a month for them at £100 a pop. Um, and that was great. And then I started doing copywriting for, for businesses and actually found it really, really satisfying. The, the art of crafting the perfect sentence mm. when you've got a really limited word count. Uh, it was basically like being on Twitter all, you know, all, all day. 
and that paid a lot better than journalism. And so gradually I just built a, a fairly solid career. And you almost learned on the job, I suppose, because cause your degree was was nothing to do with writing, was it? It was uh, No, I, it was I did a degree, yeah, French and, and business studies. I mean, obviously there was writing, but it wasn't, you know, you didn't go on a, a writing course no, or anything like that. So no. this was all, I need to pay the mortgage, so I'm going to uh, get as much work as I can in, you know, yeah. multitasking and Very learning much on the so. job. And reading a lot. I did, I had some coaching, so I decided that I didn't want to, I didn't want to do a journalism course, a copywriting course. There are so many courses out there. And, they're often very expensive. They're very time-consuming. I needed to do something that I could do from home. And actually, what I've what I did, and I've always done since, was instead of paying for a course for lots of people that might hit one of my objectives, um, perhaps I, I don't need the rest. Perhaps I already know it. What I did was I got some coaching. So I decided that I was fairly confident I knew how to write an article and a column. What I didn't know how to do was how to pitch one successfully. Mm. And so I found a journalist that was, you know, doing a a really good job. And I paid for one-to-one coaching specifically on how to pitch. And whenever I've needed something, whenever I've got a a gap in my skill set... That's what I've done is I've, I've gone and found someone who can deliver exactly that. That is really interesting because with pitching, you might have a fabulous idea, but if you can't get it out there, it's a complete waste of time, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that if you haven't quite got the skills, you've gone and looked. Where do you think that's come from? Do you think that part of your police work has sort of... Because you're working as a team, aren't you? And you're drawing on experience. Yeah, or do you think that's just your character? Partly, I, I think it, it, it stemmed from really a, a really practical basis that I didn't want to spend money that I could ill afford if I wasn't going to get exactly what I wanted. Mm. And so it was more about not wasting time, not wasting money, just, you know, getting that, that nugget. A working mum who just can't muck about. You can't. You haven't got any spare time, have you? <laughs> no. So how did the very first book come about then? Were you writing that on, on the sidelines? I was, yes. Yeah. Right. So, so during the day, I mean, obviously I've got the kids at home. I had, So how old were they at that point? So they were, so, so I left when my eldest started school. Um, so he was rising five and the twins were a year younger. And so they were in uh, preschool three so mornings, got a, I think. Got at least so I had three hours. I had a little, yeah, you do that. You do, the, you do the school run, don't you? And then you do the shopping and then you get back and you hoover up and then you go, oh my God, I've got to go and pick them up yeah. again. <laughs> so, I, But I had those, those three mornings and I had nap times because my yeah. youngest was still napping and I had evenings and my husband was still in the police and he worked shifts. And so when he was on a late shift, I did a late shift. I put the kids to bed. I went into the office and I worked through quite often until, you know, two in the morning when he came home. So it it wasn't a particularly healthy time, I don't think. And I, I was very stressed. I, I had the, the freelance fear where you can't turn any work down. Mm. And so I was constantly overloading myself because I was convinced that next month I wouldn't have any work. Um, and every month I went into the month with not enough work to cover the bills and every single month I came out with enough. That's great because you know the the beginning bit of the month is probably familiar to to lots of people. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, I felt felt very responsible and because you know I had made this decision to walk away not just from a, a job that was 
that was paying our bills then and there, but also a job that that had promise of more. You know, I, I was on a, a, a promotion path mm. that would have seen me earning more, would have seen me drawing a, a bigger pension in years to come. A lot of our future was predicated on the job that I did. And so I did feel a very big responsibility. So were there moments when you thought back at those you thought, oh, I could have that promotion and here I am and I'm scrabbling to pay the bills. Were there moments when you just thought, I could go back or I, I could oh, I'm absolutely. Give, this, give this up? Absolutely. And in fact, so, so I last wore a uniform in 2011, but I didn't resign until 2013. So I took a career break in 2011. And it was partly a safety net. It was partly knowing that if it did go wrong, I only had to give a month's notice and I could be drawing a a paycheck again. It was partly that emotional sort of bridge because I couldn't quite bring myself to to walk away. And it was, yeah, it was really, it was sort of about testing the waters, I suppose. And and so those two years were, they they were difficult. I worked really hard. I didn't have the balance right. I don't think I I improved my work-life balance. I don't think I saw the kids anymore. So um, your husband was still saying, I don't know that woman on the the appraisal. I do wonder if I had an appraisal now, what it would say about me. It would probably be worse. Um, No, I do think I see the kids a bit more now. Uh, So I was working, I was doing my my day job, the copywriting, the journalism. I did some social media management as well. I I ended up with a a fantastic gig that really sort of saved our bacon, running a a global Facebook community for an electronics firm based in um, Amsterdam. And I was the face of... How did you get it all in? Well, do you know, it it was bizarre. I was headhunted through my blog... And it was one of those emails that I almost deleted because it sounded too good to be true. Right. Um, but it wasn't. And I interviewed and I was shortlisted and I was flown to Amsterdam to have an, an interview and told what the job was all about. And, and then for two years, I was the online face slash voice of their domestic appliance range, <laughs> which not only gave us a steady income for something I could do in my pyjamas, but also gave us a new washing machine, <laughs> a kettle. Perfect. I mean, it, you know, it, they're not luxury, you know, they're not Caribbean holidays, but that's what we needed. Yes, yes. So it was absolutely fantastic. Wow. Um, so, so, so yeah, doing all of that, but I did want to write a book. And I'd wanted to write a book for a very, very long time. When I was a, a child, I wanted to be a writer. As a teenager, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write books. They, they just weren't jobs that... I thought were open really I I didn't know anyone who worked in the arts Mm. I knew people who worked in shops and were teachers and doctors Uh, they didn't they weren't sculptors and artists Mm. and you know journalists so it just hadn't really factored Um, and then I started writing this book based on something that had happened in Oxford when I was a police officer a a hit and run that had killed a child and I didn't want to, to uh to appropriate that story and and didn't want to write about that particular incident but it was an incident that had stayed with me and had made me wonder about the people involved and so I started writing it as my sort of hobby alongside the the paid writing job. And how long did it take you? It took me six months to write the first draft and then it was another six months before I was fortunate enough to sell it um for not enough money to live on, but enough money for me to think, 
I am going to be a published author. Someone likes my book enough to put some some money into it. And to it, give you, you know. a boost, because as a writer, yeah. it's such a lonely existence, isn't it? Yeah, And absolutely. you're thinking, probably, I imagine, constantly going, is this okay? Yes. Uh, you know, your husband can say it's okay, but... He's probably my husband says my cooking is okay and it's terrible. <laughs> so oh, you're full of you're full of self doubt. Yeah. And and the deal came. So I was due back to the police in the in August 2013, and my deal came in June 2013. And so it was just that little bit of confidence that meant I could say, oh, actually, I'm not coming back. Yes. I'm going to be a an writer. author, a writer. And what did your colleagues think about that? Do you know what? This is a terrible, terrible thing to say, but I. I don't know. I didn't know at that point because I'd sort of cut them off a yeah. bit. I, it's not a terrible thing to say because you said it was really difficult to, yeah, to move away from I, that job. So sometimes if you keep in touch, you can see what they're doing and it makes it, it more really, difficult. Yeah, it was really difficult. And so I, I'd always kept work and home fairly separate. So my social media wasn't, it wasn't full of work people. I handed in my phone when I handed in my warrant card and um, and I didn't give my new number to people. I just, I didn't feel I could. And I always felt bad about it and I felt a bit guilty. And then gradually what happened when my first book, When I Let You Go, started sort of taking off and more and more people were reading it, I would get, I'd get messages from former colleagues saying the loveliest of things, um, not just about the book, but about, you know, working together and hoping things were good and how lovely it was to see things going well for me. And... Um, and so I am now back in touch with lots and lots mm. of colleagues uh, who are endlessly supportive and answer all my questions because, of course, I've now been out of the job for long yes. enough that I need to do these research questions. And, you know, they always were a kind of a family. And uh, I guess now they're maybe an extended family. They're, they're, they're co-producers of your, yeah. of your work. <laughs> and, and going back to you said that you got this deal, this book deal. So how did you go about getting that deal? Well... So this is one of these slightly irritating <laughs> stories where it contradicts everything that you're supposed that to you're do. Supposed to do. All, right. All right, but tell it anyway. <laughs> um, so, so I didn't submit. This is, this is the thing. I, I didn't submit this book. I uh, didn't write pitch letters, didn't write synopses, didn't do any of that. I was running a literary festival. I co-founded a literary festival in Chipping Norton in Oxfordshire. And somebody, and I had no experience of running literary festivals <laughs> But I thought I, this was immediately after I left the police and I was really worried that I would be bored and I needed a project. I needed people to manage and a budget to manage. And but, but there's no there's no riots to, to sort out. The, the no, there, there aren't. There aren't. But there are, uh, you know, there's money to fundraise and budgets to manage and a team of volunteers to motivate. And so I'd started this literary festival and somebody, that one of the sponsors actually, said, oh, I know someone who organises a literary festival in United Arab Emirates. They've got lots of contacts of authors. I'll put you in touch. And I met this woman, Vivian, didn't know her from Adam, met her for a coffee. We talked about lit fests. We talked about authors and when we sort of finished the business side of things she said oh are you are you a writer yourself and I did that thing that all writers do where where we go oh well you know I, I mean I sort of mess around you know sort of try a little bit I mean it's nothing it's just you know jotting. I dabble. Um, so so we've got over that bit and then I told her what my book was about and specifically that there's a there's a twist there's a big twist in my first book and I told her what that twist 
was going to be because I was only halfway through writing it. And she, it turned out she was a former commercial director of a very, very big bookstore in London. And she said, well, from a commercial point of view, that sounds very exciting. Would you like me to pass it on to a literary agent friend? And she did, and the agent liked it, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, but what it taught me, apart from the fact that it's very that's a very annoying story for people who are sending off their manuscripts and not hearing anything, what it taught me was that keeping quiet about our creative projects is the wrong thing to do mm. sometimes. Um, yes. And it's something that writers in particular do. And so, and I don't know why, because I know lots of people who knit or, or crochet and they're not private about that. They say, oh yeah, I like, I like to knit at, you know, in the evenings. But if you're writing a book, the majority of people will keep that to themselves. It's also quite a British thing to do, isn't it? Sort of, you know, we're not very good at networking, I find it's quite, quite a difficult thing and selling ourselves. I think social media has helped that. Yeah. But... Maybe because when you're writing, you're putting so much of yourself into a story. It does story. feel, yes, more so than if you're knitting a, a hat. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe it's a bit of that. But it's also really interesting to hear another story that you didn't go down that sort of traditional route of submitting. And it's So lot, I would have done. Yeah. But mm. do you think, it's difficult to say, isn't it? But do you think it could have taken longer, do you think? I think, I think it would have taken longer. Um, I hope that I would have adopted the same approach as I did to freelance journalism and thought, right, okay, here's what I need to learn how to do. I need to get an agent's attention. I need to get a pitch document. I need to network. And I would have done those things. Mm. And I feel very, very strongly that the creative industries and creative projects should be approached in exactly the same way as any other job. And so if I decided right now that I wanted to retrain as uh, an accountant, then I would find out what steps I had to take I'd make myself a little action plan and I would tick them off. And yes, when, when you want to be a writer or any other kind of, of creative person professionally, there's got to be some talent, some ability. But actually, there's also learning your craft and meeting the right people. And, you know, they're all tangible goals that you can tick off that bring you slightly closer towards your objective. So be less well, be creative, but be more businesslike about the whole process. I think absolutely approach mm. it just like you would any other project. Mm. And the agent that you had for that first book, is that the agent that you've kept? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah she's brilliant. And it, it's trusting that person to to take you through to the next stage because you've, you've had, a, you know, you have a very successful first book, but, you know, a lot of writers do one book and then it all goes a bit quiet and... Obviously, you've got to have the idea, but you've also got to have that momentum and the people behind you in your team. You have. You've, you've also got to have people that are prepared to tell you when something isn't good enough. And you've got to yourself be prepared to abandon things. So, so my second book isn't the second book that's been published. So after I let you go, went... Global. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. I, I was that. trying to find a more, well, a more was, self-deprecating I, word. I was so excited when I saw it on a, on a Eurocamp caravan, like, you know, the well, books to share. Eurocamp caravan, I have made it. Um, so with 38 countries now, I Let You Go is sold in. So anyway, so so once that had, had gone so well, I, I wrote a second book and it, it wasn't terrible. It was It was quite a good book, but it wasn't as good as I Let You Go. And actually the only the right thing to do was to throw it away and that's what I did and, and wrote something oh, different I'm not sure I could do that but though. that's you know that's six months of, yes. of work and a hundred thousand words written several times throwing away would you ever go back to it or is it just you don't think it's no, got legs I, it's it didn't have a strong enough hook 
and that was the key. The, I could have worked on it for another year, I could have made the prose really sparkling and the characters really intriguing, but the, the actual hook for the story just wasn't different enough, wasn't strong enough, and you can't do a lot about that. Mm. But generally, when you're writing a book, do you know pretty much from the get-go that this is exciting, and I think this is going to be a good one. The one with this I didn't work. I do now. Right. So, so it's I, experience. I thought I had that feeling with the second book, but actually, by the time I got to the end, I knew I didn't. And although it was really difficult to throw it away, it felt a little bit like being, you know, end, ending a relationship or, or someone dumping me when you know actually it was a really bad relationship anyway. That sort of, you know, a bit of a, a kick to the ego, but actually a huge relief that I didn't have to pretend anymore mm. that this book was, was really good. And as soon as I started writing what became my second book, I See You, I knew it was a good concept. I knew it was strong. I knew that people could relate to it and it was going to be okay. And I have made sure now that I don't start a book until I have that feeling. So I feel much more confident now. Yeah. All all because of when things go well, it gives you more confidence, doesn't it? And it makes you understand what works and what doesn't. And I know they say, write what you you know about the police and, and you've in your new book that's coming out, I keep seeing you've, you've been tweeting about it. But... Oh, I'm so excited about <laughs> so it. So this is coming out in the summer. This is a June book, yes. And this isn't a psychological thriller. No. It doesn't have police in it. Drawing um, on your family. Sort of, yeah. This is a book about a, a couple, Max and Pip, who have a son who's very, very ill. He's in um, paediatric intensive care. And they have to make a decision about his future. And they don't agree. And so it's about what happens to a family when you're trying to find a solution to something that there is no compromise on Mm. um, and what happens to them after that decision is made, how they come to terms with it. And it's a book I've wanted to write for more than 12 years. Um, 12 years ago, I had to make, my husband and I had to make exactly the same decision about our son who was in intensive care at the John Radcliffe in in Oxford. And I remember asking the doctor, what happens if we don't agree? And she said, she said, you you have to, because the alternative is unthinkable. Mm -hmm. And the book that I've written is about that unthinkable. And and writing it must have been quite painful because you were drawing back on the memories of 12 years ago, but therapeutic as well. It it was both those things. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, much as my first book was inspired by, but not about real life events, this is very much Pip and Max's story and not my story. It was painful, but what what was lovely was exploring the, the what ifs you know, um, what would have happened if we'd made a different decision. Mm. And that was at times emotional, but it, I think it was a process that I've needed to go through for the last 12 years and haven't let myself because it was too painful. Mm. But to do it through the filter of a fictional character's eyes makes it slightly less painful I suppose and what do your family think about it because is it something that you talk about I mean obviously with your husband but with your children too do they know about the book and they sort of know the background yeah they do they do and my son whose twin brother it was who died uh 
he knows he knows what the story is about um he is only 12 he won't be reading this book um for some time if at all there will be some members of my family i think who might not read this one mm. who might decide that it's it's not something they can cope with i don't know if i could read it it sounds ridiculous yeah. i wrote it but i think if you know if someone else had written it and i, I think i would struggle so um yeah, but I'm really, really proud of it, and it, it's gone out at the moment to reviewers and authors, and you know, the sort of the early feedback coming in is all so positive and so emotional, and I'm, I think I'm prouder of this than anything I've ever written. So it's going to be a proud couple of months, but also quite an emotional couple of months as you as you talk about th- it and yeah, you have to publicise it. I think it. touring for two two or three weeks talking about about this book is going to be possibly a bit more exhausting Mm. than talking about my previous books Mm. but it's also it's a really important issue you know we don't talk about um child bereavement very much in society we often we often don't talk about what happens afterwards and what happens to a couple who are put under enormous stress it's all sort of behind closed doors and i think it's something that um, will do people good to, to discuss. Mm. And I can tell that you're excited about this book from all your tweets. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, you've got an agent, you've got a deal, but do writers have to really push it when it comes to getting on social media and doing a lot of the hard graft themselves to get the word out they've got a book out? There's there's a lot of publicity that you have to do yourself. And you talk about book tours as well, but do you think social media and, and things like Twitter really, really help? Well, there are lots of really successful authors who don't have a social media presence. And so I think it's one of those things that if you like social media and are good at it, then it's beneficial. If you don't like it, then actually you'll do more harm on it than, than good you know I think you have to play to your strengths and if Twitter isn't your thing don't do it you know maybe, mm. maybe you're better at posting great pictures on Instagram and not really thinking about the captions that, that, that there's something for every everyone but Kate Atkinson for example who is my favorite author is not on Twitter and it's not doing her any harm <laughs> at all so I love it I love it for practical purposes I get a lot of research done via Twitter and Facebook I love involving my Facebook followers in naming characters and brainstorming creative parts of the book that's really exciting and I like rewarding them with you know early copies of books or or, you know giveaways for special things that we can do together so whether or not it sells books it's it's really hard to quantify Mm -hmm. I think it probably does I think it's one of those things that it helps to create an awareness and I worked very hard um, before I became a, a writer at building a platform um and so I, again I approached it as a in a fairly business-like way I was a blogger mm. I was following I was writing about parenting I was attracting advertising from parenting companies and so I would follow the right people and I would have the right conversations and I'd hop on the right hashtags now I don't do that anymore because I'm not writing about parenting predominantly a lot of my conversation is is about writing and, and books but it is absolutely something that can work for your your business I think Mm, mm. that's really interesting actually because I just thought you'd say yeah no do it you've got to do it but as you say there are successful writers out there but don't do it at all play to your strengths with everything so we call this where did it all go right and and, you know it's the moment when you quit the police force when you were being brave that's the big moment but there have obviously been other moments when you had chance meetings and you got the agent Mm. Um, and also for you I think it's your attitude to to writing you treating it like you said, that that key thing about it's a creative job, but you've got to 
treat it quite business-like. I, I absolutely treat it like a business, and I have, uh, you know, I have goals. Not not necessarily as fixed as a five-year plan, a ten-year plan, but I, uh, you know, have key objectives that I review every now and again to make sure I'm on the on the right track. I'm still filling my skill set. You know, I wanted to learn how to screenwrite. I couldn't find exactly the right course. I didn't want just one-to-one because I wanted to work with other people. So I organized a screenwriting weekend so that five, six other writers would be there. And, you know, so I'm constantly reviewing, I suppose, what, what you might call my professional development. But that's what you did in the police force. You see, a lot exactly. of having never worked in a, something like that, I've never had proper that. Job. Yeah, proper job. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Um, and I know my husband has a proper job and he has all these things. So I think bringing those skills from the police has made a massive impact. I think it probably has. Yeah, I, I am. Um, I'm quite goals focused and I believe very firmly that we we can do incredible things. We just need to have some faith in ourselves and we need to make a plan and stick to it and good things will happen. I'm inspired. I'm going to go and write my novel. Uh, that's not a good idea. I mean, an Oscar for you next. What's what's next on your goals then? Or do you keep that quiet? We're going to my, see you at the Oscars with your screenplay? Well, that would be nice, wouldn't yeah. it? Um, so screenwriting is one of my goals. Writing nonfiction was was a goal last year. And I've, I've done that. I've got a, a nonfiction book, a memoir coming out this month. So yeah, lots of lots of different fingers in pies. I love it. it. Sounds great. And thank you so much for popping into my kitchen and having a chat. And I know you're so busy and with some really good advice. I think anyone listening who wants to get into writing will take so much from that. So thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and rate and follow us on Twitter at, at WhereGoWrite. Thank you to producer Megan, who is still in Bolivia. I've banned her from contacting me with any travel snaps because I'll just be too jealous. Uh, see you next week. <laughs>